And you guys are going to be in for the greatest match of your lives tonight when you watch Buddy Satello, the greatest managing line in wrestling today. Thanks for checking out the Indie Handshake Wrestling Podcast. I am Paul Ponte. I am here with Russell Jackman, a.k.a. Buddy Satello Esquire. Master of the contract. How are we doing today, sir? Uh, we can't call me sir. We know each other for far too long and have been through already so many things that calling me sir is not quite the uh, 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 correct title. I mean... Uh, we go, we were just talking, we go back about 20 years, you know, to the yeah. heart of APW and maybe when NorCal wrestling was at its strongest peak, I think. Was that Absolutely. Late, very late nineties, but early two thousands to like maybe 2006 or seven. Um, the Bay area indie scene was phenomenal and we turned out an amazing, no, and, and an amazing level of talent went through NorCal. I mean, I was just watching last night AEW and just like going, God, man, I can remember when Brian Cage looked almost like a normal human being. <laughs> yeah, for real. You know, and I mean, he worked a number of our shows. He worked one of the California Championship Wrestling shows as Mortis. A lot of people don't know that. There weren't a lot of people there, but he did it as a tribute to, you know, his fallen friend. And yeah, and he yeah. recently uh, started using the, as a tribute, he uses uh, Who Better as his catchphrase in the ring now. Yeah, yeah, because of that, his, a lot of people didn't know that Kanye was the Mortis character, and before he committed suicide, he gave that, that costume to Brian Cage. And Brian Cage could at any time be, re-become Mortis again if he wanted to. A lot of people don't know that, but that's where the costume still wound up little bit of indie trivia fan so yeah i remember especially uh the, the name that always comes to mind when i would tell tell people you know more wwe fans about my time uh doing camera and all that stuff for indie wrestling was i remember the american dragon and he couldn't cut a promo to save his life not at all <laughs> we're here at kane indies with 16 of the best wrestlers in the world i'm not the best wrestler i'm not the fastest i'm not the strongest but when it comes to, I don't know, I'll off the bed. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan Danielson. Yeah. You know, it's weird, weird when they flipped his name around. And I was like, yeah. wow, that's okay. If it works for, for Vince, I guess it works for, for Anything for Brian. that trademark. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this has really been... Interesting, because I give my own podcast with Evan Ginsberg called Wrestling and Everything Coast to Coast. So it's sort of odd to be not asking you questions. (laughs) I'm used to being the one that does the question. So um, I guess my question back to you is what's on your mind about me? Well, I have a lot of questions, actually, because this is technically the first time I've had someone who was a manager for as long as you Hat were on there. I had Ruby Rays, and she started off as a valet for a, for a couple of years. But 
I haven't had someone who did management pretty much almost exclusively. I'm, I think, or did you ever wrestle at all before? Uh, no, okay. I could barely withstand the moments that I was in the ring. No, <laughs> I come from that, that Andy Kaufman slash grand wizard slash Jimmy Hart slash Jim Cornette kind of lineage of managing. In fact, the first one to really do that was Al Farhart, the, uh, the Grand Wizard. He was the guy that, that um, uh, really uh, uh, had no ring experience and never did anything in the ring. And nobody ever grabbed him or beat him up. He was just, you know, free to, 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 to you know, just mouth off and let his, you know, compatriots do get, take the beating for all the crap that he talked. But, uh, you know, because before that, managers were pretty much just ex-wrestlers that's you know or you had or you had really big guys like you know uh, uh you know really just kind of big muscly dudes who would sometimes get in the ring get more involved now the one thing i can say for myself is i'm not tiny i am 510 and i'm well now thanks to covid a little bit more than 185 but i was about 185 then and i had studied jujitsu, Okinawan jujitsu, not Brazilian jujitsu, but actually Okinawan form of judo. Okay, and it involves a lot of uh, like high falls and and throws and uh, being you know hurled about. Knowing how to fall is a critical part of the early part of jujitsu. It's even more intense than Aikido. So that must have prepped you pretty good for taking a, a nice manager, yes. manager bump in the ring. Fallen, well, an interesting side story is I joined this dojo down in southern, uh, 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 the South Bay, and uh, um, because I was working at AMD. And I lost my job there, and so um, uh, I had to move back up. But as I left that dojo, they said, oh, we have a sensei who has a class in San Rafael, but all his students have just petered out over the years and he's going to close this school unless somebody joins. So I joined and I was the only student of his for four years. Oh, wow. Four years. So, so he just went and worked on me like exclusively for four years. And so he beat me. Well, that's the one thing is that when you have a big class, it's one thing when you have a lot of other students that can take the falls. When you and, and a seven-degree black belt all by yourself, there's no time off. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, you get kind of worked out pretty hard by him. Um, but actually, we were solo for the first two years, and then we added to the class, you know, as time moved on. But it was, it was pretty intense two years. And so I really learned a lot about falling. That's why when I got into the ring, everyone wants to, who becomes a pro wrestler thinks all about dishing out punishment. That's when, you, when you're a kid and you think about like pro wrestling, you think about like pile driving somebody or, you know, body slamming someone, whatever. But really, pro wrestling is all about the punishment that you're able to. If you yeah, it's a give and take, take situation. Yeah, you'll be able to have a long career in wrestling. If all you can do is dish out punishment, your career is going to be short. And so one thing that I found is that, you know, when you're a manager and you play, you know, the Jimmy Hart type role or something like that, you can sell even the wimpiest punch like you were shot 
from you know a uh, an assassin's rifle you know well, you, yeah because the, the people in the ring are they're the ones who are larger than life so you got they're like superheroes so well, the mere I, mortal has to has to take it as though a hurricane yes. has hit them oh absolutely well you know at that stage you were starting to see kind of a rebellion on that concept by those in charge of the WWF and the WWE, as you had Vince McMahon getting in the ring a bunch of times in that early 2000 period. You had Shane McMahon going in and and doing all those crazy stunts. You had um, David Arquette, you know, sorry to bring that up, you know, becoming WCW champion. So there was sort of this trend of like smaller guys. And then, Everyone loves seeing the small guy getting beaten up. So, like, you know, like, people love to see Crash Holly and Spike Dudley get the, the tar beaten out of them. So, I was just another kind of ragdoll type, you know, and I could take some decent moves. So, you know, I was like, fine, I'll do that. And that's, a, you know, the way you get involved. And so, you know, we, we did that and amazing names. You already know all of them, but I'll say a few for some of the viewers like Mark Smith, who we, you know, we're talking about before we went on air and Boyce Legrand and Christopher Daniels and Brian Cage and um, Brian Danielson uh, or Daniel Bryan. And of course, Dalit Singh, great Kali, mm-hmm. you know, these were all, you know, the, the, the NorCal territory, Nigel McGuinness, uh, Low Key. Uh, uh, Did you mention Kazarian? Oh, I didn't mention Kazarian, but I yeah. should because he's Samoa Joe. I worked with yep. Samoa Joe. Yeah, I mean, so there were when that you uh, XPW invasion, the uh, UPW invasion. Yeah, UPW was it? I'm trying to remember. What was? Yeah, it was, was UPW. UPW. UPW with Bassman came up and invaded the NorCal territory. We, I mean, that brought John Cena into the. We were able to. I didn't actually get to meet John Cena, really. Was, yeah, the prototype. Yeah, yeah, he was really busy when, when he came up there. But, you know, I shook his hand kind of thing, but I didn't really, like, talk to him. But I got to talk to, to Samoa Joe for a while, mm-hmm. and Kazarian, and, and oh, of course, Johnny Morrison, you know. Oh, and we had uh, AJ Styles up at yeah. APW as well. That's and I right. Me- I remember that because the question I asked AJ Styles when I was, like, because I was working, you know, camera at the show, and so, like, every once in a while, you'll just find yourself, like, by a wrestler, and you're just, like, trying to, like, small talk. Like, what do you, I don't know, what do you talk about? And the first thing I asked, I was just like, so what's Air Paris been up to lately? <laughs> and he was like, I have no idea, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, that cracked him up. You can crack him up, you know, and yeah. don't act like too much of a mark to them. I think that's when they, you know, uh, you know can open up. And some, pe- some guys just, you know, they're so into their match. If you catch them after the match, that's different. They yeah. talk to them about how they did in the ring. But before their match, some wrestlers, what they want to do is they don't want to talk to anyone. And they are like, just focus, 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 focus. Some are the exact opposite. They're like, I want to do anything but mm-hmm. think about my match. I've already gone over it 5,000 times. Or you have the veterans who are just like, I've done this match with this yeah. guy. You know, this is our 40th match that we've done, you know, the, you know, the last two months, you know, we've done it up and down the coast. We've done it across the country. We know our routine. We don't. And so then they just want 
something to pass the time before they, you know, get in. So I think it's important to sort of read the wrestlers in the back, and yeah. find out the ones that are in the mood to like chat and not, you know, chat the ear off of the guy who's really trying to. Yeah. I remember one time when I was doing uh, the website for big time wrestling up here in Northern California, uh, I was in the back and Bret Hart was there and he was talking to uh, road warrior animal or Hawk. I forget. But anyway, he was talking to him and they were just bullshitting. Like they were just, you know, shooting the shit, but around like everyone, everyone was kind of just like circling around listening to these two guys who were like legends, just, you know, talk about random nonsense. And like another guy who was working for BW, one of the like volunteer more aspect, he walks in, he just kind of like interrupts Brett to ask him a question. And I'm just sitting there like, like, dude, like read the room. Like, <laughs> do you not understand? Like, <laughs> Like what, you know, like, and I think I learned that pretty early on is that, uh, one, 90% of the time wrestlers don't want to talk about wrestling. And two, uh, if, if you, if you mark out they their eyes glaze over pretty fast, they're like, and, eh, and they shut yeah, off. No, yeah. They're, yeah. I mean, on the other hand, for me, I mean, anytime a fan wanted to talk to me, I was, mm -hmm. anytime a fan wanted an autograph from me, I was yeah. thrilled. I was like, this is the greatest. I mean, you know, the fact that somebody like liked what I did enough to, ha to have me want to sign something, a poster for them, you know, especially yeah. the little kids. I just thought it was a really fun, you know, thing and a great part of what I did, you know, and, and something so I, I never took for granted. Let's talk about that. So you're a kid, obviously, I'm assuming, who liked wrestling. Yes. So you like wrestling, and I always ask uh, people about this because a lot of people, when they like wrestling as kids, you know, they don't know what independent wrestling is. They don't know what, you know, every, everything is WWF, WCW, or, you know, NWA, or whatever, everything, I whatever you see on TV. I go back a little TV. further, my friend. I go okay. back a little further, my friend. Yeah. Uh, back to the WWWF. Yes. So I always ask wrestlers, you know, when they start out, how do you first discover independent wrestling and realize that's something you can get into? So as a manager... Obviously, you're, you're looking up to these managers and you want to do what they do. How do you first discover indie wrestling? How do you first discover getting into something like that? And when do you start thinking, hey, this is possible. This is something I can get into. Well, okay. One thing is that I am in real life an attorney. Okay. Mm. So that, that is one thing. It's not just a work, actually. Yeah. Do uh, 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 legal, real legal stuff. Cause, and I actually am a really good something that is natural to me the way that I do wrestling stuff. It's just, it just, there's things in your life that just you, that make so much sense that you just go, okay, I, I understand. That's why I'm a computer consultant because I also understand fixing people's computers in arrival. But, but um, uh, uh, I was, I told you I had that job down in the South Bay and I lost that job. And at the same time, I also had lost, this relationship that I'd been in. So I went into like kind of a bad depression kind of like moment of my life for, well, actually it was for a couple of months. And, and I was uh, watching TV late at night and there was a, uh, a, an advertisement for all pro wrestling, for the all pro wrestling school in Hayward. And um, uh, uh, then like maybe like, like a month later, there was a news program that did like a thing on all pro wrestling. I was like, you know, next time I see the ad for that, I'm going to write down that number. and I'm going to call him. I'm going to say, 
do you guys need any legal contracts for stuff and and see what they have to say and i and i called and i reached roland alexander and roland roland i mean you knew him he is an interesting guy that knew that there were ways to get things out of people that weren't necessarily monetarily related. Like he knew how to like barter one person's services for another person's services and therefore get both of those people to be indebted to him. Yeah. Which is a skill that, that, yeah. Which is a skill that I think it, you kind of need to be a a successful promoter or booker in wrestling. But it (laughs) eats itself up. It It does. The problem is it's a, it's a, Peter paying Paul type situation where you're the middleman and you make these two people pay each other off through you and try to make them seem like, like they're indebted to you for that as a favor. That becomes this circle that can bite itself on the ass really easily and bit rolling on the ass many times. That's why, unfortunately, he, he died bankrupt. You know, he died with a, a lot of people are like, well, APW did this and APW did that. It's like, yeah, but Roland didn't earn a dime doing, it. you know, that's one thing is that a lot of promoters don't make any money doing it other than like Kirk White and BTW who does, does those sold shows, you know, and, and then Butch ah, who does the uh, wrestling for charity, but it's been tough for him to do those too. And everyone's suffering during the COVID crisis. You know, I don't know if Roland could have kept everything going. I don't even know. But anyway, I got to know Roland through doing the legal work for them. And then I said, okay, paying me off, just make me, I want to learn how to become a pro wrestling manager. I have all this jujitsu training. I can, I, you know, and I went and I drove from Ring County to the Hayward facilities every Saturday and got beaten up in a class that included uh, referee Tom Castor and and Sarah Del Rey. Sarah Del Rey, who's the you know now like development of talent at WWE. Yeah. You know? uh, and and she used to practice by beating the hell out of me every Saturday. It's one thing that I called her was Stiff Sarah. <laughs> this would wallop me. She didn't like have great judge of distance and things like that. <laughs> so you know the low blow. She really low blowed me the first time. And I mean, not like in a sexual way, but just like walloped me right in, you know, the Johnson. And like, I was doubled down on the floor for probably about 15 minutes. I was like, okay, I don't <laughs> think that's how it's supposed to happen. You know, so, so I have my, that's, that's a claim to fame there is being walloped severely by, by Sarah Del Rey on a, on a weekly basis. But I'm so proud of both her and what Tom Castor has been able to do as a ref. I mean, that, as I said, that one class right there provided two amazing professionals, the shape of the, the WWE as we know it. And well, and we had Dalip Singh in there too. So, I mean, that was all that, just that class of 2000 like, provided, you know, a real like forever historical influence on the World Wrestling Federation slash uh, entertainment um, company. So it was quite, quite wild time. Quite wild. Yeah. And besides getting hit uh, in the junk extremely hard, uh, what else was surprising about when you first started 
training to be a manager based on what you saw on TV and what you expected yeah. and what you ended up happening. Yeah, well, of course, you know, the glamour, you know, sort of goes away immediately once you see these guys, you know, hanging around in the locker room, picking their nose and, and, and spitting you know, chew into spitting a... tobacco. <laughs> oh my God. Like just, that was everywhere. The cups that were full of tobacco was everywhere. God, and I am not a tobacco chewer. So. No, I, I, I had to avert my eyes many times when people oh, were like sitting there gross. talking, just holding it like right in front of them. Yeah. I'm like, oh. I'm like uh-huh. uh-huh. Just yeah, looking up. No, I, I, I'm, I think today's kids are, are a little bit hipper than that. They don't do, but the vaping I hear is just as bad. Anyway. Yeah, I'm assuming that's what it is now. Yeah, yeah, it just turned to vaping rather than than shop. But but um, uh, things that uh, you know, one thing that I always thought was was interesting from my perspective of when I joined APW was, you know, I kind of joined the you know the the sort of the back office type because I was working with their legal stuff and things like that. So I wasn't just a talent. I was also intertwined with the, 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 the goings on of ABW and, and talking to Roland a lot about, you know, where we wanted it to go and, and things like that. And so, you know, there was just, it was a tough situation for Roland because I think overall, I think he was a good enough guy. I think he was. But he also was a guy that sort of was, he had a balance between like his, his giving self, where he was a very giving guy and a very selfish person that wanted to get a lot of credit for everything that went on. Mm. And he's, I, I don't know, did you see The Last Dance at all? The Jordan documentary, Michael oh, Jordan documentary? Uh, I did not know. I've heard about it, but I haven't seen it yet. There was a guy for the Bulls, Jerry Reinsdorf, who's who is kind of small, kind of ugly, you know, not a good-looking guy, you know, but he's the guy that assembled the Bulls. And he always wanted to get more credit for assembling the Bulls than anyone ever gave him credit for. You know, it's all, when they talk about the Bulls, they talk about Michael Jordan. You don't know who Jerry Reinsdorf is, so it obviously pr proves that, you know, he wasn't he didn't turn out to be a famous person, but he was the mastermind behind all that stuff. Well, Rowan had that same kind of thing going on, that he wanted to be recognized for being, you know, putting all these guys in place for Modest's career, for Jordan's, for uh, uh, Donovan Morgan's career, for Dalip's career, you know, for Sarah Del Rey's career. You know, he wanted credit for that, but no one wanted to give it to him. And that was for a variety of reasons, some of which you may already be well aware of having yeah. met him personally. Again, not a bad human being, really deep down inside, not a bad person, not an evil guy, but he was the schlubbiest person like on the face of the earth. And schlub meaning like he looked like he rolled out of bed like every single hour of the day. A lot of sweatpants and... Well, okay, well, you know, he always, he never shaved, he always had that, like, three-day growth. It wouldn't, he wouldn't grow it out to a beard all the time. It would just always look like he just hadn't shaved, like, he just got up. And, yeah, he'd wear flip-flops. Sometimes we'd wear those, those tank tops that, you know, showed, or, or those t-shirts with the, the arms cut out in them, because tough guys were all wearing them in the, in the mid-90s and, mm -hmm. and late-90s. That was the the big fashion 
and and it just and I you know that was one thing that really was a big problem that 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 cut that caused the the breakup between Noah uh, I mean between Pro Wrestling Iron and All Pro Wrestling was that the 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 Donovan Morgan and Modest wanted to work with Pro Wrestling Noah. And the NOAA representatives came up, they saw Delete, they saw Modest, they saw Donovan. They were like, oh yeah, we're really impressed. Then they met Roland. These Japanese guys who were wearing like $1,000 suits met Roland who was wearing a backwards baseball cap, flip-flops, like jean cut-off shorts, and just looked, and I think he was wearing sunglasses. When, and, and, you know, I don't have to maybe, this isn't about Japanese ethics and morals, but Japanese, especially the pro wrestlers, are almost like Japanese military members. They're, they have this super strict code. You know, it's like a, they treat wrestling there like they treat martial arts there or MMA or whatever. They, they still mm. treat wrestling like it's a serious thing. What you're doing is something that has honor to it. Yeah. And if you disgrace it, then they hate your guts. You know? And so Roland, just the way he showed up for this meeting, just was so, like, they were so offended by it that they just, like, said, Donovan, we want you. Modest, we want you. Delete, we want you. But please, don't bring that guy, Roland, anywhere around us ever again. And so that was a really impetus. They said, you know what, as a way to get you guys involved, we'll move, we'll help you form Pro Wrestling Iron and we'll link it with Pro Wrestling Noah. And so that's how Pro Wrestling Iron split off. And it also led to a disastrous King of the Indies match. And actually the guy who, who benefited most from that alliance was our own friend, Mark Smith. Mm-hmm. who used that Noah connection to get himself booked to both Japan for a number of years and then to Puerto Rico. Which yeah. And he was over in both countries, like really well over, like for an American two over in Puerto Rico. Yeah. No one will ever know. Yeah. No one will ever know the truth. I, I hope sometime they actually do. I don't think, he just had a heart attack. Interesting. I want to get this podcast in any trouble, but I'm going to say that just as a friend of Mark Smith, he didn't lead. I, I had no indication that he had any health problem, suffering from any heart ailments at the time that he said he died. Yeah, that was uh, that was one of those ones that really came out of nowhere, and it was very. It was strange, man. I got it. Yeah, it was it was one of those things where it happened and I was like, there's no way like a dude who, like you said, like there was a lot of guys. Uh, I'm not going to name names because this isn't a this isn't a shoot podcast. This isn't a Barry podcast. But there are guys I encountered in all pro wrestling and pro wrestling iron that were, you know, that would get really drunk and or do other stuff. And they would kind of party a bit. Uh, sometimes at times they probably shouldn't have, uh, whether that be maybe during even kind of near training matches, um, or some other things. Anyway, point being Mark was never one of those guys. And, you know, having 
And he was very like quiet and just kind of like, he wasn't a dude that you thought, oh, this guy like rages, but he wasn't that guy. So I don't know. Yeah. I, I struggle to believe it as well. I'll say that without any kind of, of, I have a couple of great Mark Smith stories. Let's do that because I love, I love the guy and I I would love to hear some. I, to be honest with you, there's probably 10, if I had a list of 10 people that I missed the moment, I'd tear up a thing about him. It still makes me very sad. I mean, he died uh, four months after my kids were born. So I was just, and I had twins. So I was in no, it was just such a tumultuous time of my life. I couldn't go to his funeral. And I was one of the, I think I was one of the few people from APW that was invited to his funeral. But it was in the middle of, it was in Modesto. And for people that don't know California, I mean, going from Marin County to Modesto, it's like a day's drive. And it was like at noon. And I found out about it like two days before it happened. It was all very strange. So there, there's a lot of big mystery as to what happened there. So I just want to clarify that. But getting back to, to Mark Smith, and um, one thing is a lot of people do not know this, but he was a big friend of uh, Leon White, and Leon White wanted him to become the next Vader. And Leon White actually offered to give him the uh, the, the 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 helmet oh, and the shoulder pads, and said, "You can come down to the ring from now on if you want to be, you know, Vader Two, Vader Two Thousand, whatever you want to call yourself." And Mark Smith said, "That's you. I never want to. I don't want to." take away from your character and say that someone else was you. You were this character. You will always be Vader. That's that. And that, that kind of says a lot to who Mark Smith was. Because it's not only did he value a guy like Vader and respect him to the highest degree, because that was like the kind of big man that, that Mark Smith always wanted to be, you know, um, but also he wanted to be who he was. He wanted yeah. to be genuine. And, and when I first met Mark Smith, he was just sort of, well, I mean, he was, he was uh, just Mark Smith, the football hero. And he looked great, but as a face, he just wasn't getting over. He just was, was just, you know, uh, uh, he was with the gigolo, uh, Vinny Massaro, you remember that gimmick mm-hmm. where he had this jester hat and he would do this he'd dance at, uh, to uh, uh, Ice Ice Baby I think or, or Funky Cold Medina something like that you know before the, the match started it was all very hokey and it didn't and the fans were not buying it and I was like I, this was when I was still attending early indie matches at uh, APW and I hadn't actually you know been trained I was still starting out my training but I was just you know, not actually in doing my managerial character yet. Um, and I was, I was just like, you know, I went up to Roland. I said, these guys, they have talent, but as faces, they're just not getting over. Why don't we find a way to make them heels and see what they get? And with Mark Smith, we went with the Super Destroyer 2000 character, which to me was... If you, when you talk about like how much you love wrestling as a little kid, when you talk about like you dream like up characters when you're a little kid, if you like, I never dreamed that like I could be like a wrestler wrestler. Like I would sit there and be 
heavyweight champion. I mean, of course, everyone imagines they'd be heavyweight champion of the world. But the truth is, I always knew, you know, I was never going to be big enough to be. But have you ever, like, seen, like, the, uh, the um, Warner Brothers cartoon where they have the little dog and then they have the big bulldog oh, yeah. right next to him? I love that cartoon. And I love the little yaffy dog. Like goes bark, 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 then runs behind the big dog. And then now you take care of him. So that, you know, Mark Smith as Super Destroyer was perfect in that role. He didn't have to talk. He just had to act menacing. And it transformed him. He said he was thinking about like going back to like, you know, like being a coach in football or something like that. He was like, wrestling was not fun for him. And me and Mark, changed everything by putting that mask on and by him playing the old school. I mean, we even gave him the heart punch as a finishing move to just like emphasize to fans what an old school concept. He would come out to the ring with no music, you know, because we were like trying to really old school it, make it like, you know, either like the, the mass superstar or, you know, uh, the spoiler you know, none of those guys ever came out with any music. Mm. And Mark and I had a great time. We really did. Um, and then one of the times we went to Vegas, and uh, I'm, I, when we went to Cauliflower Alley, and um, we, uh, uh, I, Vinny and Donovan and Modest and, and, and at the time, uh, uh, Veronica, who, who married Vinny, they all went to this club in Vegas. And I was like, no, I'm not going because A, there's going to be a fight probably. And B, I just, I'm not a, a dance club kind of guy. And Mark said, he's not either. And I said, well, that's interesting. Why aren't you? And he's like, well, because, you know, you go to a club like that and you're a big guy, you're going to wind up being a target for like everybody that's there. And he said, plus I have a girlfriend at home and I'm not looking to score, you know, on my girlfriend. I'm like, Wow. Okay. Great. So, so me and 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 Mark went to uh, uh, the Pepper Mill, and we um, uh, played slots most of the night. And then we finished up the slots, and then Mark and I like just sat around for like not till like maybe like two in the morning, just just like at a uh, you know he drank while I, I I'm not an uh, I don't drink alcohol, so I just had my dad go and just sat and listened to him talk for, you know, we talked about stuff for about another two hours. But one of the things that I got out of that two hour discussion was pretty, pretty amazing uh, insight, not just to a guy like Mark Smith, but to like big men in general. It's like when you're kind of like a smaller guy and I'm not, as I said, a small, small guy, but certainly compared to like Dalip Singh or someone like that, everybody's small. Um, uh, 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 when you're a big guy, life can, and he really opened up about like how difficult life can be as a big guy. Like how, you know, if there's another big guy in the room, he wants to prove himself. He wants to beat you up. You know, you always have to prove yourself. You always have to show you're tough. Your people will, you know, give you a hard time because they want to seem like a big man by, standing up to you even if you're not necessarily the aggressor and like one thing that happened to mark too this was a couple of years later he went back to vegas and he and this taxi driver 
went and took him to a totally wrong area, like overcharged him like a huge amount of money. Um, Mark got out of the car and the taxi driver like confronted him and started pushing him around. And Mark realized like, I can't hit this guy because if I hit him, even though he's pushing me first, no one's around to see it and they'll automatically assume if I beat the hell out of this guy, that it's my fault because I was a big man. Yeah. And that he was always kind of, that being a big man like that, being a tough guy like that, you're guilty of things that you've never done because of how you look, because you intimidate people. You're already guilty before being proven innocent. And Mark Smith, I will definitely say, was one of the most genuine people. And I wouldn't say innocent people of all time, but he really was an honest guy. He no, he's really, a good-hearted dude. Yeah. Yeah, in, the, in, in wrestling, extremely hard to do. Yes. Extremely hard to do. You know? well, there, was already, there was already so many flags of that you were talking about during that, during that exchange that it was like, you know, if, if, if anyone who's listening or watching this hasn't hung around with a lot of wrestlers, uh, there's already a few flags that, that aren't very common. Uh, I don't really like going out and partying. I'm not trying to cheat on my girlfriend. I'm not, <laughs> there's like a few yes. things where you're like, oh, wow, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, these are all genuine things about Mark. I mean, I'm not making up any of those things. It's, it, he really was a down-to-earth guy. And really, when I saw him at the shows, it was like seeing a cousin I hadn't seen in like months. I mean, to, to how happy I was to see him was a genuine like brightening of my heart. And, and I just can't believe that in a couple of years, it'll be, it'll be, you know, that was seven years. Piggybacking off what you were saying. He did tell me one story one time where I forgot what kind of social situation this was in. I don't know if it was a club or a party or what, but some guy, did you know a smaller guy tried to you know fight him to prove a point and he and and mark said he kind of like almost like put like a full-on like like pro wrestling hold on him where he kind of just held him and he just hold, held on to him and he went are you done and the guy like kept thrashing for like 30 seconds and then he was like if you're done i'm gonna let you go and you can go on the rest of this party and he was and the guy was like all right i'm done he's like i'm sorry he's like okay and that was he was just like dude I'm not trying to fight you. He's like, you need to know better right now. It's that is so Mark. That is so Mark. He didn't want to ever hurt anybody. And the other thing about a lot of people don't remember too, is that Mark was in the ring as part of the six man tag team affair that when Misawa died. I don't know if you remember that at all. Oh, wow. Really? I, I, yeah. I totally slipped my mind. Yeah. No, he was one of the, 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 you know, he was, I mean, that being said, he was he had reached that level in Japan where he could be an American working in a six man match with Misawa. Yeah, I mean that's that people don't get Misawa here in in America. We just totally like he's the Ric Flair that nobody knows about, mm. you know. But in Japan, oh my God, you say Misawa and like you know everybody he is as big a star as Hulk Hogan was or as, you know, Ric Flair was. But here in the United States, he wasn't. But Misawa did an early show of AP, uh, of Pro Wrestling Iron. Yeah. And, and, you know, that built into that Pro Wrestling Noah connection. And then that brought Mark over there. And it was just so tragic that he was part of that whole scene that cost us Misawa as well. And it's just 
there's that weird cloud of just all these things that sort of like circled around that whole time period, including the Brian Ong death situation, which to me, I'm shocked that Dark Side of the Ring hasn't done a dark side of. In fact, I think APW itself and Roland Alexander would be a fascinating dark side of the ring. Don't you? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a lot. There's a lot. Uh, It's, it's, it's one of those things where it's difficult to talk about, but yeah, there's some, there's some, I remember when it happened cause I was there, I was running, uh, I believe video camera for like the shows for like the Brian Ong tribute show. Uh, so I remember everyone with their armbands and everything, but there was always like murmurs of people talking about it off to the side, like that, that it was a little uh, suspect, I guess is a word. I was named in a lawsuit. Yeah. I was actually one of the uh, defendants. Yeah. And they realized that I actually didn't own and have anything to do with the uh, going on of what goes on in the ring. So they dropped yeah. as it. But I got to tell you, I don't think Roland handled it all that well. Mm-hmm. And I told them to settle it, you know, as their attorney. And then that led to a lot of friction. Roland, and particularly um, Jason Dedrick, we all argued over that quite a bit and they wound up taking it to court and they, they lost, you know, APW lost what, how they were able to keep on in business. I'll never know. Roland was able to keep things running at APW in a way that I'll never understand. He never had any money. He was always broke yet, you know, and he never paid any taxes on anything Mm -hmm. that APW ever did. I can say that as a, as a, 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 you know, now that enough time has passed. APW, at least the entire time that I was associated with it, from like 2000 to like, you know, 2012, whenever he died or whatever, never paid anything in taxes. So who knows? That's that's like uh, how he managed to do that, you know? Yeah. The one skill, other skill role, a very shifty accountant. Well, I know, I know me and the other volunteers, quote unquote, at APW events never got paid for anything. Uh, it was, um, you know, volunteers, like people who run video cameras. You consider those volunteers somewhere. Not sure where. Uh, only there, I guess. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I listened to the, uh, or I watched the episode with uh, Jesus, uh, also the Indie Handshake on your podcast. Thank and you. uh, yeah, he had the, uh, the same experience I did where uh, I did camera for the King of Indies. And uh, they were like, hey, do you want to copy King Indies? And I was like, absolutely. He's a cool, like 10% off. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, and at that point, I just went, are you fucking kidding me? I was like, I, dr- I got there. I got there. I had to ride with someone else. You didn't pay for transport to get my ass out there. I worked the event for free. I've worked many events for free. The least you could do is give me a DVD and you can't. And that they point, lost so much money with King of the Indies. I mean, oh, that yeah. was one thing is that, you know, Roland had a vision and he wasn't going to back off of it no matter what. And then Roland, Roland was in a tough spot where he was at the height of where indie wrestling was, but he kept thinking it was going to go higher and mm-hmm. that APW was going to, you know, become Ring of Honor, basically. 
I think he really wanted to make APW the West Coast version of Ring of Honor. And he was sort of spurned on by Rick Bassman. I think he also got in his mind like, Rick ba- if Rick Bassman can do it, I can do it. And if Rick Bassman can make UPW this big thing and, and come up with, you know, uh, 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 John Cena and, and, and Samoa Joe and Frankie Kazarian, I can do that with Mike Modest, Dalip Singh, Donovan Morgan, you know, with APW, you know, and I'll get Brian Danielson, you know, Daniel Bryan, you know. And so there was this sort of like, like, like the North versus the South, sort of like this yin versus the yang going on and Roland to do that really spent beyond his means even though he was normally pretty good at being cheap he got he got a vision that so controlled him that he wanted to make that happen at all costs and i think especially after the second one was a gigantic failure the first one was okay because yeah the second one is 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 the one that i i left after yeah the first one that we did, we did within budget. We only invited people that were in California or that were working California shows. So we didn't have to pay full on cross country airfare to bring them in, you know, but Roland, like in the second one, you know, he brought in Danielson, he brought in um, uh, uh, low key. He brought in AJ um, Styles, AJ Styles. Exactly. He had a big bill to fly everybody out. He had like a hotel deal that didn't work out for him. They thought he was going to be able to house him for free. And then that didn't really work out. That sponsorship failed like right at the last minute. So he had to book him into like cheap hotels. We still had to pay the, 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 for the money to keep him in hotels. That he wasn't expecting to do. And then, you know, he was expecting, we, we had that place in Vallejo, which was the um, uh, multi-use sports center on Mare Island. And it was huge. And it could fit like 2,000 people. And I think Roland really thought that we'd generate a crowd of 1,000. And it was more like a crowd of 400, which is what we'd always draw. Yeah. You know, even with the largest names on it. And I had the honor of being the curtain jerk match for King of the Indies too, which was a sloppy... I don't even remember our opponents. And I was... I was man, that, that point, my, my relationship had... had Degenerated so much that instead of managing Mark Smith or Boom Boom Sean o, Sean Patrick O'Doul, who was like the known for having absolutely no character whatsoever, <laughs> I don't know why you're pairing a guy who's supposed to be an Italian attorney from New York with a guy who's a, a, a um, an Irish bar brawler. But uh, we we had a lot of trouble trying to come up with storylines for that particular element. I wasn't there very long until. Because after King of the Indies 2 fell apart, APW, remember, went dark for like about two months. Mm-hmm. You know, Then it reemerged with Danielson as the head trainer. Yeah. And Modest and Morgan and Smith and the other folks moved over to Pro Wrestling Iron. So that, that was that kind of dark period, too, where no one really knew what was going to happen with the future of it. You know, that that was a big issue, too, because Donovan Morgan wanted to become the head trainer and mm-hmm. instead Roland put Brian, uh, Daniel Bryan. And look, I guess in history that he was probably the, made the right choice. But 
modest at the time, and Morgan really took a front to that, along with wanting to have the pro wrestling Noah connection separate from Roland, and that's what. Yeah, let me uh, backtrack a little bit. Um, sure. So when you were managing uh, Mark Bison Smith, and he's Super Destroyer two thousand, uh, when he decides to go, when he really, I think, because uh, you know, you mentioned before, he, he couldn't really. He didn't, he didn't really like find a character until you put him in, in the mask. And then afterward, you know, he got the blonde mohawk and he really, he really like became Bison Smith. And I think, and I'm wondering, um, you know, what's that like when you're managing someone in, uh, you know, the kind of the beginning of their career like that? And like, is it a little bit uh, like, oh man, I kind of, I, I, I'm so proud of you for like finding this, but also 100%. I'm very... Hundred percent. Like you know, there's got to be a little bit of you that's like, oh man, but we had our thing, you know. No, no, I was a hundred percent. I was like, Mark, I am so glad that you are in your skin now. And then what we did was in Pro Wrestling Iron, as the Bison, he fought a ton of my guys that I managed, which meant that also I, they kind of did this gig where it's like. Okay, buddy, you're going to fail with everybody you manage, but we're going to give you a different person to manage every time. Okay. So I got to manage BJ Whitmer, and I got to manage Nigel McGuinness. And that Nigel McGuinness match rocked. That was one of my favorite matches that I did. And I got to manage Malachi. I got eventually and take the title away from Mark Smith. So that was kind of fun, too. That was a great match that we did over at Swiss Park. So, like... I was still able to work with him in his other versions. So it was actually a lot of fun to then be his opponent after I helped build him up to something like that. And the thing about managers is that you always want to work with new talent if you can to try to get them over instead. You know, I, I worked with a lot of guys that were, you know, trying to, to, you know, define themselves. And then we did that same character again in Mr. Massacre with Paul Isadora um, over at California Championship Wrestling. I put the mask on him. And he was my giant mask bodyguard there, too. And okay. you know what? Paul is a great guy. He is much scarier. And so I really liked the effect of having the mask on him. And I just love that old school, super destroyer, yeah. mass superstar, spoiler, Mr. Wrestling, God bless his soul. You know, Mr. Wrestling 2, God bless his soul, who just passed. Um, you know, the destroyer, the intelligent destroyer, all those types, you know, the machines. Um, um, I'm just a big fan of mass wrestling. It's one of my favorite parts of professional wrestling, which I'm sad is sort of dying out as kayfabe, you know, continues. Yeah. But hey, God, you know, God bless uh, Luchas Luchasaurus. Yeah. He's so I, I I don't know if you watch uh AEW. I just uh, did. I just Okay. Did. So did you see Dynamite this week? Yes, I did. When he did that shooting star press off the freaking off the ramp, I I I popped by myself on my couch like, yeah. like I I was like, "What? How does I don't know." But AEW yeah, so, is providing a much more entertaining show than the WWE and I'm watching AEW yeah more closely and more regularly than I am the WWE. That, that's, that's the truth. That's the so you truth. must be, as a fan of old school, you must really be loving the Sean Spears, Tully Blanchard gimmick going on right now. Yeah, yeah, I find, I find it's, 
AEW guys haven't been working to, towards the largest audiences anyway in the last couple of years. So they're used to smaller shows. The WWE guys, you know, are used to 60,000 person arenas or 20,000 person arenas that are filled up. And I think they're not reacting well to the silence. Mm. Whereas the AEW folks, plus they, they're doing a good job of, you know, bringing in the other wrestlers into the crowd and having them at least and the show, the people that work the show all kind of hanging out there and making some amount of noise. Yeah. So, and, and, some, and furthering storylines also. Correct. They'll be like, okay, this guy kind of gets into it at him at ringside. Now that sets up a match for next week. Perfect. Okay. Like, yeah, they've done better with that small element than they had than the WWE has. And I think I'm enjoying those shows more because the, they're able to play the smaller fans and not act like, oh my God, there's nobody here. Whereas yeah. when you saw The Undertaker, you know, working an empty show, he looked like he was about to take a nap somewhere on, you know, the ring apron, you know, yeah. in the middle of the match. He just was really, you just could tell, like being in a, almost a practice facility mm. just took it all out of him. He's not a guy that, you know, wants to spend time practicing. So. So how does that work for someone like you? So you're a manager and you're, you know, part of your job is to interact with the fans, get them riled up around you. So when you're in different indie shows and you're working and sometimes you have a bigger crowd, sometimes you have a smaller crowd, how do you adjust what you're doing? How do you, you know, what's your psychology like when it comes to that kind of thing? A couple of things help. One is my brother would come to the shows too, okay? And my I would send my brother out to be a sort of like, Bob Zamuda. Are you familiar at all with, with Andy Kaufman? Mm-hmm. That my brother would be Bob Zamuda and I would be Andy Kaufman. So, so sometimes I would like, well, first of all, I'd have him do reconnaissance in the crowd. And like, he would say, you know, there's a bunch of real yoke. Why don't we, I'm going to sit behind them and I want you to go and, and heckle them. And then sometimes I would also pick on my own brother. Like, and then fans would like go oh man you're so mean to that guy why are you so mean to him (laughs) you know and but you gotta read the read the hate in the crowd like a stand-up comedian knows that there are people that are gonna laugh at his jokes Mm -hmm. you find the people that are really into it the people with signs people with t-shirts you know the people who are missing the front rows of their teeth you know exactly and then you you find the one thing I never did is I never worked blue and I never worked a racist angle. I never would, 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 you know, say anything racist to anyone, but some of the hicks in the front row are so easy to insult. You know, I'd say, you know, Hey, I didn't know that, uh, uh, Sir, I, I didn't know that. Oh, okay. The other day I saw, I, I was on the internet and I saw your face over at www.imanidiot.com. You know, you bring out like the old Don Rickle insults and you go like, you know, if I add the, the, the uh, four of you together, I might get an entire set of teeth, you know, and, and things that, you know, come from the Don Rickle school yeah. of cla- and, and Henny Youngman and, 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 and from, uh, 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 you know, old Rodney Dangerfield type, you know, shtick. and also Andy Kaufman. Andy Kaufman was great at generating just raw heat from seeing, reading an audience and seeing how much, what things they hate about you. And then, of course, I was always, uh, my character was always from New York. So I had the Yankees tie. 
does make fun of the A's, which were a big East Bay, you know, thing. Yeah. And, you know, I'd, I'd make fun of how much I hated California. And I'd say how great New York was. And I used to say how my client, Donald Trump, yes, Donald Trump in 2000, was uh, paying me dollars per hour. <laughs> I didn't know then, but I... I I, I invoked every New York celebrity I could. I was yeah. talking about Leona Helmsley, Woody Allen, and Larry King, and you know, so forth. They were all my clients, a way to generate GP. So, you know, you just work those things and then get people, you find the one that's the most rabid anti-fan or fan, and you get that person like frothing at the mouth and the people around them It'll be a puddle of hate and the, the, the waves of hate just sort of emanate from there. And all of a sudden, people are, you have 500 people chanting, buddy sucks, buddy sucks, buddy sucks. And you know, that is an amazing feeling. When, you, when you're able to get a crowd to feel what you want to feel, that is why wrestlers do what they do, managers do what they do, musicians do what they do, dancers do what they do that suspension of belief and then you get the applause or the booze, but they're doing what you want them to do. Okay. It's a drug that infects people in ways that make them jump off of burning tables and, you know, hit each other with fluorescent light bulbs and, you know, do steel cage matches for 60 minutes. That's why we do it. Is this the drug that is fame? and performance art. And that's something that's built into human beings, or at least some human beings, these yeah. really stupid ones that, you know, are willing to sacrifice their bodies for other people's pleasure. But it's as, as central as human history is. It's something you'll see 5,000 years from now, humans will still do some kind of performance art. And 5,000 years ago, we were doing it back then too. So how do you, uh, you know, at the time you're managing someone, how do you walk that fine line of, you know, getting yourself over too much versus getting over the person in the ring? Like, how do you make sure that you don't put yourself over more and overshadow what's going on? Easy. Rest holds. And when guys get thrown out of the ring. Okay. Otherwise you listen for when the crowd goes mild. Mm. Cause that's the worst thing in the world. You know, what you don't want is a chant of boring, boring. So if you feel the crowd starting to get to that, do it. Otherwise, the truth is you've got to be paying some attention to your spots, too. You can't, it's happened to me a couple of times. Look, you do, you do it long enough in your career and you miss your spot. You, you're, you get so into, like, you know, a yelling match somebody up close okay one time in vallejo there were these two guys that dressed up as the insane clown posse i don't know if you remember mm. there were these two guys that looked exactly like mark smith hated them and they <laughs> hated mark smith and they hated me too and so they i mean Mark Smith, i did actually have to hold from actually going into the audience and beating the hell out of those two guys and he would have he would have he was like that mad i mean they were just incessant they were just incessant and totally vulgar and just just really i mean drunk annoying like those kind of guys but you have to you know there's four corners of the ring so 
in that instance, I would find, you know, Mark and I would find a way to work away from those guys and go to another part of the crowd and work mm-hmm. that part of the crowd rather than get anywhere near those guys. Okay. So they like would throw stuff on Mark when he would fall outside the ring and yeah, like coffee and things like that on him. Yeah. He was really like not going to take it, you know, like, wow. like one more time. And you know, I was like, yeah, Mark, but then we'll have a lawsuit. So like, you know, let's just try to work. And then the other thing too, is that you, you know, your spots, so you know, where there are high spots and guys are going to be working. I mean, as a manager, it is your duty to go over the match and sit there during the match that they're going over and say, okay, here are spots that are going on. Here are spots where, you know, there's going to be a rest hold or something like that. And that's when I can do that stuff. Plus they'll call for you to, you know, do the leg trip or to, to get up on the apron and yell at the, the ref or something like that. And meanwhile, you know, what I mostly do is torment the ref. That's the other thing that you should do as a manager is if you're not making fun of the crowd, make the rest life miserable. Just constantly dark at them about every little thing. I would actually say to the ref, your shoes are untied. I would say things like, like um, you know, I, I was looking for your stripes to be white and black. Instead, they're black and white. What the hell is wrong with you? I'd say, where did you learn how to count to three? You know, whatever local junior college is around, you know, like, like yeah. Antioch. I'd say, did you go to Antioch Junior College or something like that? You know, I would just be in this constant, like, and then I like the idea of still, and back then, you know, kayfabe was not completely broken. So I like the idea of, of a manager showing that he's rooting his guy on. So I would say, you know, from, from uh, I borrow from all the managers that I like. I have a stay on him chant kind of thing that I would do, which is a Jimmy Hart kind of tribute. And then I'd have uh, some cornetisms that I'd throw in, you know, to, to the ring to, to, you know, give actual wrestling advice, even though your wrestlers aren't going to follow it. You're still saying, work him, work him, take him to the corner, get yeah. the quick tag, get the quick tag. You know, I, I like that because then people are thinking, okay, then he's actually managing. He's not just here to yell at the crowd the whole time. Yeah. So when a wrestler is going to signal for a trip, how does he signal for a trip in the match? Um, that's something you go ahead, uh, you do beforehand. Okay. You go before the, it's not a signal thing. You, what you do is you know the, what I've always considered is smart is know the two moves that are coming up before you're supposed to do your thing. So in other words, a guy will say, I'm going to do a backbreaker and then I'm going to, you know, uh, climb up to the top rope. And then I'd say, okay, so I know when I see the backbreaker and he starts climbing the top rope, I'm going to get up on the ring apron and start shouting at the ref, or I'm going to, you know, or they'll say, okay, you know, we'll do a crossover, body i'll do, i'll do a leapfrog and then after the leapfrog you trip to so say okay you see something first because if you wait for the actual move to happen sometimes it's too late you're like mm. out of position but if you know the move that's going to happen just before that it gives you a chance to be in the right spot because it's all about that being in the right spot if you're in the wrong spot as a manager you, you get the reputation as being just a distraction to the 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 boys more than it is to the to the audience but i have had wrestlers say you generate too much heat or something like that but i've never had a wrestler that worked for me 
that I was managing ever said I generated too much heat. They were all okay. like, that was great. I could take a total rest. I could do a total rest hold. And we still had the crowd, crowd yelling and nobody was saying boring because you were able to, to, you know, tell everybody to shut up when they were, you know, about to say boring. And then they all yelled at you, you know? Yeah. So most wrestlers like that. They don't have to carry the match entirely by themselves entertainment-wise. They can take a blow and still have somebody that's entertaining the crowd. So, but that's now so old school. I don't know if, I mean, you just, you don't see any male managers in today's, mm. uh, you know, in any of the feds right now, except maybe Aaron Stevens, you want to count him when he's quote unquote managing um, uh, the question mark in yeah well i mean uh they got you know like we were mentioning aw blanchard is on sean spears and then arn has been the coach right yeah cody yeah i guess those are but they're not the same kind of like heel coming no yeah every time you know like a coronet or a heart or you know that kind of thing and you don't have people with stables you know like I had my Satello syndicate, which I love. That's the other thing I love. I love making stables. That was a great thing that you just don't see anymore to power. Um, but that, those were great. Heel stables are great stuff. And I guess you could say that um, uh, the guy who's got the dark order going over in AEW. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, Brody Lee and them. Yeah, Brody Lee. He's probably as close to being a heel manager stable as you've got in wrestling right now. Or maybe yeah. Jericho. Yeah, you know, but but those things are good. I think those things are good for wrestling. People like these kind of bad guy groups or good guy groups, as opposed to everybody being solo on their own. I think. Yeah, well, they've been teasing uh, the four horsemen angle on with the FTR and Cody, and I I'd be interested. I think that'd be a fun thing to do. Um, Yeah, actually, I was watching on the WWE Network, going back and watching old WCW stuff, and. Man, I completely forgot how underrated the Dangerous Alliance is. They were pretty like, tough. It's like you look at that group of guys and you're like, this is top-level talent going on here. Well, but it's still breaking their way in at the time when they yeah. came in as the Dangerous Alliance. We didn't know how good they were going to be yeah. over time. So l- let me see. I'm trying to remember. who. The- well, you had Steve Austin. Yes. Uh, let me see. Hold on. Let me just pull was it up Hillman real quick. Also in that? Yep. Yeah, because it was both uh, the Hollywood Blondes. Yeah. Uh, I believe wasn't it Medusa with them also? Oh, I love. It. I had that. That was one of my first. Runs. Wendy Richter, obviously, back in the day, and and Medusa. I love Medusa because Medusa was. I mean, she really set the stage for women to get into wrestling and wrestle and do moves as well as men could do them. She she didn't do that like body slam where you hook the arm over the head. Oh yeah, like a lot of women did in Glow. She would like really do like the full on release body slam type thing. You know, um, she would do real vertical suplexes that weren't just like rolling on her back and, and just making the other girl you know just do a roll. Yeah, over. she would actually lift them up. Or the or the scoop down. slam where you release it like a foot above the right. ring yes. where you're just like, yes, it's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Really? That kind of thing. And I was like, wow, you know what? You know, because in the eighties, you know, I was like, you know, girls could actually wrestle as well as a man could if they, you know, dedicated themselves. I think Medusa kind of introduced that 
style of, I mean, really trying to wrestle like a man wrestle. Um, yeah. And she had some great matches with like Akira Hokuto and WCW when they, they were really like, for a while there, it seemed like they were really going to push in like a strong women's division and then it kind of just went away. And it's, it was, yeah, kind of like as I was talking about last week, well, with, with Jesus about the cruiserweights. You know, the WWE got, WWF got excited about it. They would push it. Then all of a sudden it would just sort of disappear mean you know and then not get revisited again for years and then they'd have another tournament they get excited about it they would you know push it and then it would disappear it'd be the light heavyweight title or be the cruiserweight or Mm. it would be you know the junior heavyweight title or whatever you want to call it you know they they would introduce it get excited and let it drop by the wayside i i kind of like the title i mean but the problem is is that you have once this cruiserweight title and all the cruiserweights are done wrestling for it then you wind up having the cruiserweights starting to take on the heavyweight guys for titles and then inevitably you have the heavyweight guys going down and fighting for the cruiserweight title yeah and then well, that, that like, was oh, the problem uh nwa tna and then impact had was they were like we have the x division but it's not a weight class so because of that that's literally what happened like samoa joe's fighting for the x division title i'm like well then what is this what what is, what is it it's just another <laughs> title i You know, I kind of liked it when it was just the WWE Championship, Intercontinental, and Tag Championship. Yeah. And then the guys that held it, held it for a long time. Although, I guess it'd be argued that, well, Brock Lesnar, but when you wrestle once a year, it's not something that, you know, has a lot of merit to it. It doesn't really feel like it's being defended very much. So, you know, by having all these other side titles, I know that belts mean money because the WWE markets the hell out of them and everybody buys a new replica belt that's why they introduce a different type of belt like every yeah. 45 minutes it's like and know. now they have what i consider probably the ugliest titles i've ever seen in any wrestling company they I, are pretty bad i don't like them you know i don't I like mean, them at all i look back at like the old nwa titles and um well like, you were just talking about the intercontinental title the old wwf intercontinental title is one of the most gorgeous belts the white one the, the, the one with the white, white strap one? with the the tr- yeah, like uh, uh heartbreak kid yeah heartbreak kid uh mr perfect had it like those yeah. ones were that one was just that's one of my favorite titles i i love that title i liked the winged belt from, i did too uh, the, 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 and then i was looking at the stone cold skull belt the other day mm-hmm. i was like you know what that actually was kind of a cool title i mean obviously only stone cold could have it but it was kind of a cool title but yeah i wouldn't buy a replica belt and then Apparently, everyone's buying these side plates. Yeah. That's the next big thing. So it's not bad enough that you spent 1500 bucks on a replica belt, but now you got to spend another 500 bucks on side plates that, you know, yeah. they honk, honk if you're horny or whatever, you know. I just want to add in, uh, the, the reason I, I always knew that WWE never really understood cruiserweights, especially Lucha guys, was they never understood the fact that Lucha isn't a gimmick. Like you're a lucha person and you have a gimmick, but lucha itself is not a gimmick. You don't that's just I'm a luchador. <laughs> like that's yeah. like saying my gimmick is I'm a pro wrestler. That's, right, right, that, right, right. And that's why I love like the Lucha brothers, like their whole like zero miedo, all that stuff. Like they're like, this is our character. Their character is not just that they are luchadors, they have their own personalities or whatever. Every time the WWE tries to put in mask guys, they're always like, they're luchadors. That's their right. game. 
Right. Well, because they have so few of them, they, they yeah. kind of, you know, hate to say it, token wrestlers to yeah. fans. They're just like, we've got to have Lucha wrestlers. So here are, you know, blue and white label luchadors, generic yeah. luchadors, you know, you, like you get it at, at the supermarket. No, I, I agree. I mean, they, there's so much that Vince could do to access the lucha market and to build that up even have like some kind of like real side story that would like bring in that kind of market but he doesn't care i mean vince has lost that ability and i the the writers of uh wwe have never been enamored with the smaller size of most lucha wrestlers so i think their chances to continue to make inroads with aew you know and and they fortunately aew is more open to that sort of thing and yeah. and so i mean to me i feel like the hope of the new generation for wrestling is aew i'm sort of hoping that maybe when the covid virus goes away the people start really leaning towards aew and put some leverage on the wwe and we do have another quote-unquote monday night war type situation yeah where the wwe has to improve its product because it has some real competition. You know, once they took over everything, there's no surprise that once Vince took over the WWE, you know, WCW and AWA and all that stuff, that we went from having, you know, really great stuff to, you know, brawl for it all, you know, the Billy and Chuck wedding, um, uh, uh, the giving birth to a hand, by Mae Young. Still, it's 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 so and the Kiss My Ass Club. Yeah. You know, it's when there was no competition and nobody out there to like hold Vince to a standard, the kind of wrestling that we were subjected to was is insulting. I couldn't tell my friends that I was a wrestling fan during those years because it was just too embarrassing. Yeah. You know, they're like, oh, so you like this kiss my ass club thing going on here? And I go, not really. No, yeah. but that's what's happening. Yeah, and AEW isn't perfect, but to me, it feels like, one, the workers seem like they're actually having fun when they're working, which is not something I could say about any WWE product I've seen for a very sure. long time. Uh, two, it's ran by mostly the workers who are running the company, so I feel like they have actual wrestlers' best intentions in mind. Maybe that's why they've been testing everyone for COVID, whereas the WWE was not for some reason. Um, And I feel like if there's something I don't like in AEW, chances are the next segment I'm going to enjoy. So it's kind of like, it doesn't all feel like it's coming out of the same factory. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think it's it's been big. And and I think, well, also the other thing is that the, the wrestlers in the WWE truly don't know when they're going to be next. Like when they're going to, they, they're fighting for their jobs. They're fighting for their lives. They have this sort of invisible specter hanging out next to them. And, and they're being given terrible storylines to work with. And then they're told when those storylines don't work, that it's their fault. You know, it's yeah. because it's, it couldn't possibly be because, you know, we had, you know, Eric Bischoff writing some of these storylines. No, the storyline sucked because you're not over. And, 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 and then yet we're, we're on command by Vince, you know, to, to make sure that no one under 6'10 gets signed, you know, 
with, with our company. Well, there's only so many talented 610 people out there, you know, otherwise just getting someone that's 610 because they're 610, you know, big cast yeah. isn't exactly, you know, going to always work out and motivate people. I mean, that's why a guy like Luch Luchasaurus is a big deal. This is a big man, but he can actually work. You know, he works a really good match, you know, mm -hmm. really great rates. He really puts out, he, he can do some great moves, but he can also take some shots. You know, he's not willing, he's not unwilling to get, to do a job. You know, I was really surprised that he jobbed in Dynamite. The, yeah. Uh, the Wolfer or uh, to so Wardlow. Wardlow, Wardlow. You know, the, the Wardlow also looks really impressive. I mean, that to me, I think that personally was the match so far of 2020. I love for my favorite match. Mm. Was was Wardlow. that was a crazy match. That was that was a great way to uh, to start out the show. That's for sure. That's a but it that's didn't a, need the run-ins at the end. That's yeah. the only thing I'd say AEW needs to sort of get away from because that might be a little bit too ECW of is to have mm. every big match and with a Pier 6 brawl, everybody kind of... Yeah. Stuff can be, you know, taken care of with just two guys. And if they do that a little bit more and not bring in all the... the in every time that you have factions facing each other, they all got to get in the ring. I think that makes things just a little bit cleaner. So, and, 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 you know, having... But what, as I said, what I liked about the Wardlow ending was it was a, a for sure pin. Mm-hmm. So I was impressed with with seeing a clean ending to the match. That's and one thing they said when they started out the AEW was they said they didn't want like too many count. Like they didn't want any like non-clear finishes. They didn't want disqualifications. And I think to this day, there's been like one DQ. Wow. Which, which is <laughs> pretty good. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so uh, it's about that time. The promoter okay. is running out. I appreciated it. This was really a lot of fun. Yeah. So we're going to go ahead and take the show home. I got a few questions here to ask you. Um, a little kind of rapid fire, but if, you know, it triggers some kind of a, a story or anything you want to tell in between, you're more than welcome to, to do so. Up, huh? It's hard to shut me up, isn't it? Oh, it's totally fine. Um, so we'll start off, actually, just piggybacking off what we were doing. Uh, if you were to go ahead and put on the management suit again and uh, put on the Yankee tie, uh, if you were to pick one person in WWE and one person in uh, AEW that you would love to manage right now, if you could just step in and do it. Luchasaurus, number one. Absolutely. And I think I could do a pretty good job of managing Brock Lesnar. I think I could, I would have him getting in the ring more, but I could, you know, especially since Paul Heyman's been let loose, I think I'd be a good substitute. There you go. He's looking for someone, you can give me a call. Uh, when you're watching wrestling or you're managing and you, you're watching it from the ringside area, what's the fit, your favorite move or hold that you see the wrestlers do? I'm a sucker for the claw. I'm sorry. I know it's hokey. I know in the day of claw is, I just love watching a guy who really knows how to do it. I was a big fan of the spoiler. Um, Mark Smith used it. I don't know if you remember. He yeah. And he was, and he would do like the claw choke slam. Yeah. I and love that move. I, I know it's pretty dangerous, but I, I, I do love the claw slam move. The intro for the podcast, the video in intro ends with uh, him doing it from the top rope. Oof, I wouldn't want to take, fortunately he never did that on me. So, yeah, I I'd say the claw slam would be mine. And I like the way uh, uh, Lance Archer incorporates it at the end of his fight where he just kind of 
over and over again, hits the guy, and then he pins him with it. But I also, I, you know, I also love the hard punch. I love the hard punch because it was a, a, a no-impact move that the guys that we did it to sold like crazy. Everybody enjoys the hard punch sell because you can just totally, like, oversell it and, you know, writhe around on the ground and you do the kicking and you can do the, the twitching stuff. You know, nobody yeah. does the, 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 the jittery like thing and you can just be so overly corny with it and and i did love that part about the heart see i like it when a guy like mark's size does it i don't like it when i see a 180 pound dude in the indies do it i'm like what is the point of this (laughs) exactly no no when people sold the mark's hard punch they really believed it so yes continue uh what's the craziest fan interaction you've had oh okay perfect one um Vinny and I were, uh, Vinny Massaro and myself were headed in Pacifica and we were headed to the uh, ring and this guy who was in the front row who was mentally disabled. I mean, he was, you know, someone that, you know, unfortunately short, rode the short bus to the, to the match. He had a boiling cup of coffee and he threw it on Vinny. And Vinny was ready to kill him. And so was I. I was like, wow, that's pretty scary. I mean, the fans really hated us in Pacifica. We were really just, me and Vinny were just like, for whatever reason, just people really hated us. But then after the show was over, who was standing in the front row looking for our autograph? And it was that fan. And it was like, you hated us. You hated us, our guts, but you want our autograph. Oh. And, you know, the guy who was with him, who brought him to the show, said, yes, you know, this guy doesn't quite have all his marbles together, but he, he loves you guys. He loves you guys. So yeah. it just shows what kind of fans you um, When you're working as a manager, uh, you know, you got to – you have a good rapport with the person you're managing, hopefully. But, you know, sometimes you're working with another person that maybe you don't. So what's the worst thing someone can do uh, when they're on the opposite side of the ring? when it comes to laying out a match or putting on a match? Oh, God, I've been potatoed by the other side. Yeah, I was, uh, this guy, Dante, who is just, I mean, one of the great men who really has probably an IQ of about 50. And I was, you know, uh, my character's from New York. So I got up on the apron and his move was to bounce off the ropes and, you know, knock me off the apron. And he absolutely potatoed me with a forearm and knocked me down and, and, you know, really hurt me pretty bad, you know, in the chest. And, and I, in the locker room, I was like, well, what the hell was that all about? All you needed to do was tap me, and I would have just fallen right off the apron. And he said, well, you know what? You're wearing the New York hat, and I'm a big New England Patriots fan. And, and, and boy, do I hate the New York, New York Giants, man. So you, I saw your hat, and I just wanted to hit you. And I'm like, wow, okay. I'm not working in Wow. Game. Yeah. That's, that's, I think, I think, you know, potatoing is the worst thing. When some guy is expecting you to go light and you mm-hmm. wallop them, then, you know, what happens is the next time you bounce across the ring and someone has a chance to wallop you, they're going to wallop you and probably twice as hard as how you hit them. And that's how real injuries happen inside the ring. People say it's all fake, but what they don't understand is potatoing is not fake. Yeah. So. I remember actually one time at an APW show, uh, it was Dalip Singh against Max Justice. And Max Justice did his moonsaults, which was pretty crazy considering his size. And Dalip rolled the wrong way and his knees caught Dalip in the back. 
because he was supposed to move out of the way of the moonsault. And Dalip got up, and um, I don't I know if he, ass- he assumed it was Max's fault, but he put him this. in the corner and just started on him, just like to yeah, the point the whole, where I was like, he's not pretending. had to basically clear out. The whole gym had to like pull them off of each other. Yeah. So that was a crazy show. I remember that. Yeah. And back in the locker room, I remember then they went back into the locker room and like Roland had to like keep both of them from killing each other. I don't think, I think that may have been like one of the last times Max did anything at APW. I think he mm. was really angry at the way that Roland basically took Delete's side on that thing. And because he wanted Delete to be the big star. And so yeah. Kind of, uh, yeah, I remember that. Not a pretty night at the at the garage. Yeah, I remember. I, I remember after seeing it, I was kind of like, "This isn't Max's fault. Like, he rolled the wrong way. He's supposed, to, you know, roll towards him. He's flip. He's doing a moonsault. <laughs> like, okay. Anyway, yeah. But well, uh, when's the last time? Uh, or not the last time? But what was the time in the ring that you were surprised legitimately by how good or uh, someone was in the ring and how or how quickly they took to the ring? Um. Uh, Probably my first match with Vinny Massaro. I was like, you know what? Vinny is really a very innovative wrestler. And it's like, I'm glad I actually have a a seat in the very front row and I'm able to watch him do his thing, you know, and, and, and work, work his show. The other, the other time I felt that way was watching Samoa Joe work our match against um, uh, uh, Boom Boom Kamini. And I was like, watching Samoa Joe do what he did, I said, and this is the King of the Indies, uh, 2000, the first one in 2000, or the, during the UPW, maybe this, yeah, it may have been Antioch. And, and he was so good in the ring, I was like, you know what, he's definitely, I felt that way about Kazarian, and I felt that way about Christopher Daniels. Both of those guys had gotten call-ups briefly to the pros, whereas Samoa Joe hadn't gotten a call-up yet. I was like, it's only a matter of time. Uh, has a booker ever tried to stiff you or one of your clients on money? I never got paid. I did all the stuff that I did. I got paid for a couple of shows, maybe like four shows in my life. You know, How about for any of the people you were managing? Uh, I've had them accept less, but I would never have anybody work for me and have them go for free. I will say this that um, uh, the former owner of California Championship Wrestling borrowed money off of me once and never paid me back. Um, But that was just all part of what was, I did it to make sure the show happened because if if I didn't put that money out, the show would have not happened at all. And the show did happen. I was supposed to get paid back for it. and I just never did. I'm still glad I did that for that show. So the show happened. We didn't have a dead show and that we had to turn away fans. I would rather have lost the money than to have lost the fans. So it happens, but everybody, wrestling takes sacrifice. And you'll see that, you know, if you, if you don't draw a show, if you, if you have a show and the number of wrestlers outnumber the fans, you're not going to get paid. And it's your opportunity then to say, if I'm not going to get paid, I'm not working the show. Or you can say, you know what? I need the practice anyway. I'm going to treat this like it's a light show. And I'm going to learn how to do stuff. And I'm going to, you know, interact with the boys that are here. 
and and get something out of this rather than have it be a total waste of time but it is hard when you're wrestling it is really hard to just focus on your character and you know that people are going to go home broke i've had to give money to some guys just so they could get something to eat otherwise they said i'm going to pass out i'm sitting i'm hungry i've been working on the ring and you know before this and i got enough money for gas can i even get like a buck for a cheeseburger you know so i can have something to eat i'm like dude yes i'll give you a buck you know i never did wrestling for the money and i've never done it for the money i did it for the experience and to be able to to take one of the biggest things off my bucket list and check that off and say, I did it instead of sat around during my life and said, gee, I should have done it. There you go. All right. What's the hardest you've laughed at working in an indie show? What's the hardest that I, okay. Um, let me see. Uh, one time when, and this wasn't really an indie show, but it was at the garage. Uh, and it involved Dalip Singh, of all things. Dalip Singh was sitting in the upper area where they were they had the, the dorm rooms, which were really just totally unfire-coated, you know, sleeping bags on the floor, basically. Um, and Dalip uh, was trying to, like, eat nothing but tuna. It was just so, like, stinky. And he would, like, leave all the, like tuna juice in the cans like it, like there so like Corey you know Corey guy Tommy Drake he was Tommy yeah. Drake he saved up like all the like like tuna juice that was in the cans and he put it and he like balanced it right over by Dalip's bed so like when Dalip got up it would tip over and spill all over him. and it did and Dalip found out that Corey did it and he chased him around the building at least four times trying to get, he's like, Corey, I kill you. Corey, I kill you. And then the other thing too, that was great. This reminds me too, is that I did one light show as the manager of Dalip and we made Dalip into Dalip Van Halen. And I was going to make, he was the missing Van Halen brother. And I was going to make Dalip his new, I was going to manage his music career. I wasn't going to manage his wrestling career. And so he had a guitar, which he played backwards. We had him like sing to like the, the fans, you know, what in the world? And he was just awful. And it was really, <laughs> it was a gimmick that I'm, I'm surprised the WWE didn't at least try once. <laughs> like if they made him like the Indian Elvis or something like that, that would have been oh a my great gosh. having him sing. Cause he just, I mean, you, you know, Talib's voice, you yeah. know, he couldn't sing at all. So I, I thought that was a, a great little skit there too. That was, that was oh my gosh. Uh, speaking of this actually segues perfectly uh, as far as gimmicks go, you've been to a lot, you've you know worked a lot of shows, a lot of different places. Uh, what's the worst gimmick you've seen? Wow. Wow. Um, the worst gimmick in an indie show. Yeah. Uh, that, um, I, I did not like, you know, the gigolo, Vinny Massaro, that was one thing that I thought was just getting over, not at all. Um, I've also seen, um, uh, who is someone that really didn't get over? That's a really good question. Um, I didn't, you know, we, we, had, we had, okay, one time we had in CCW, when we were short of guys, we did bring up 
a luchador, and he his name was Super Bozo, and he was a clown. And I don't know, it just he was he was he was a clown, but not like the doink kind of clown. He was like a clown, like a, somebody that like literally was like someone's children children's entertainer. And he I, he knew no moves. Oh he had no. no ability. Like he didn't do anything funny or anything like that. He just literally like tagged in, got beaten up and pinned. And that was like I was like, well, why are you even dressed up as a clown then? You don't even have any kind of a I don't know. They may have like just found the guy on the street corner somewhere and said, here's 20 bucks. You know, we're going to beat you up and pin you. And here's a clown oh. costume. So that yeah. was a pretty bad game. Uh, uh, for this question, you know, this isn't, like I said, this is not a shoot podcast. If you don't want to name any names, totally name fine. Totally fine. Uh, any, uh, w- you know, former WWE, WCW, ECW guys that were working on a show that you were on that thought they were bigger than the show acted oh, yes. like they were. Uh, you don't yeah. have to finish that. Okay. Have to finish that. Perfect one comes to mind. Absolute buff the stuff Bagwell. He was the least professional guy I ever worked with. Showed up at a BTW show 45 minutes before his match. Kirk White was calling him the entire time. Is this in San Jose? Yeah. Yeah. It was I was at that thing. show. Yeah. Yeah, and Mark Smith was on that, and so was Corey. They, they fought each other, and it was the only match I ever managed in BTW. And Buff Bagwell, like, came in late, was totally drunk, and spent most of the time when he, instead of going over his match with Styles, Joey Styles, was instead talking to Corey about the difference between Jägermeister burps and Captain Morgan burps. And which one was the worst one to have? And they were kind of in like an argument. He was like saying, no, Captain Morgan is worse. And he's like, no, no, Jägermeister is worse if you drink too much of it. So he was, he was, he fought like a two and a half minute match. I mean, I think you saw it. It was Yeah, I, I remember this one. He was, I was actually he was barely able to walk to the ring. He was that drunk. That and the entire time he was holding in his gut. Yeah, he was totally out of shape. So he, he couldn't take a bump. Every time he like did anything, he couldn't like fall down because that would mean he would have to bend at the waist. It was embarrassing. It was embarrassing, even for the fans that have very low expectations, which is a BTW crowd. Even they were like, this is a pretty bad match. I have two others that I will mention. The other one, one is Manny Fernandez. So I won't get any. He, we had Susumi Sakai on the show and Sarah Del Rey was on the show and we had Manny Fernandez on there. He, he is the embodiment of what the Me Too move fighting against. Oh, he was wow. hitting on them like as if he had a sledgehammer. It was embarrassing and ugly to watch. The sexual harassment that he was basically, all the female wrestlers were on the card. Were just, he was just like hitting on them nonstop. And I was just like, oh God, man. And, you know, saying, hey, I used to be on TV. Come over to my hotel room after the show. And mm. I was like, oh, man, give it up. And they were just, just you know, pushing him away and just really just pushing him off. And then the final one that I really did not like working with was Rikishi. I really, really? He, was, he was a real problem guy on Wrestling for Charity. I would never work with him again. He showed up. He also showed up late. He um, insisted on getting a bunch of tape. First of all, the, the uh, wrestling for charity had to come up with tickets for him and his family to go to 
Marriott's to Great America, Paramount's Great America. So that was an extra cost. Then he showed up. He didn't want to talk to any of the other boys except these guys that he had already worked another show with. And then his attitude of performing itself was just really awful. And when I didn't want to take his stink face, because I didn't want to take his stink face, um, he was so insulted and furious at me personally. And then he caused a real disruption in the locker room. And I'm just saying, you know, I know he's a WWE Hall of Famer, but, but that was a crap. That was a crap uh, a performance by him, and um, I'm glad that I won't hope not. Uh, what for you? It's the, I call this the touchy feely question of the segment. Basically, what for you? Uh, whether it be before a match, during a match, after a match, it gives you those goosebumps, your pure joy in wrestling. When it happens, you're like, "This is why I fucking love wrestling. This is why I got into it." Oh, the buddy sucks chance. Those things are great. I mean, when I was in Cloverdale, the high point of my career was we were in Cloverdale in uh, 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 Northern California. And for whatever reason, we sold the place out to the Raptors. We had 500 people standing room only. It was the biggest crowd that we, that we had in the show. And, and um, the Battle Royale, the other managers went in, and someone was supposed to tell me to go in after introducing the managers, but they forgot to tell me. So I stood out there during the Battle Royale, and me and Mark Smith um, as Super Destroyer 2000 took on Kid Chrome and had like a match outside of the match that was absolutely just one of the most fun. The crowd just went crazy over it. Then Mark Smith and, and, and um, Kid Chrome had a match against each other later in the show that was off the rails. And it went crazy. And it culminated with Kid Chrome doing a dive out on us. And the fans went absolutely nuts. And then Vinny Massaro took on um, Nate Miyake, I believe, for the, for the um, uh, uh, internet championship. And by that third match, for the, 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 the crowd buildup was so intense on that one. And me, because I'd shown up for the third time out there, the amount of buddy sucks chants that were going on in that arena for the very last match. And it was a great match that Vinny had with Nate Miyake. I was just like, this is why people do wrestling. It's for a day like this. I also had, a, when I um, uh, was a California Championship Wrestling and I, uh, uh, the Super Slam show, where I wound up winning the world championship, managing the world champion winner, the tag team champion winner at the same night. And it was the night, before my birthday, my 40th birthday. And so for my 40th birthday, I could show everyone the world title belt. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was great. That was, a, that was also the culmination of a year's worth of a buildup that we had. And it went over perfectly. It was a perfectly run show. I know you didn't go to any of the CCW shows, but that, the Super Slam was maybe my highest moment as a manager. Not as big a crowd as Cloverdale, but it was the kind of thing that when you go home and the next morning you wake up and you see the belt that you helped win, you're like, yeah, that's the cool. Very nice. All right. And then we'll just end it off with any pranks or embarrassing stories you can remember. Oh, well, I have obviously the one with uh, delete getting dunked on with the uh, tuna. Um, it's not really a prank, but it taught me how tough the wrestlers really were. 
Um, we were sitting around doing nothing at all in the, in the APW office. And Vinny takes his arm and puts it on the desk. And he takes a stapler. And he opens up the stapler and he goes, pow, 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 pow. And staples his arm. And I thought, oh, well, this is some kind of trick, you know, uh, like the staples are bent already and it's yeah. lying on his arm. And then he takes a pen cap, he sticks it in, and he pops each one of the staples out, and then blood is running down his arm. And I'm like, that, and he's like, that's the kind of, and he didn't flinch when he did, when he, when he put all those staples in his arm. I said, that's how tough you have to be to be a wrestler. He's like, that's how tough you have to be to be a wrestler. If you can staple your arm like this and you don't even flinch, it doesn't hurt you. In fact, if you kind of like it, mm. then you should then you have a career in wrestling. If you can't do this, don't get into wrestling. Wow. Wow. So there's Bananas. your story for you. Awesome. Well uh please go ahead and plug anything that you want to plug. Uh you know, tell people where they can see you online, all that kind of good stuff. Yes, you can find me on Facebook.com as Buddy Sotelo, E-S-Q, B-U-D-D-Y-S-O-T-E-L-L-O. But more importantly, I, I do a podcast with Evan Ginsberg every week called Wrestling and Everything Coast to Coast. He's in New York. I'm in California. We try to cover everything in between. Sometimes we talk comic books. Sometimes we talk horror. You know, we talk to people of a wrestling background, but then we get into the other things that they do in their life and find out how wrestling either influences it or what they do to express themselves outside of wrestling. We've had some great shows. You can find that on Facebook, wrestling and everything coast to coast as a group. And um, we're also on YouTube. So um, we'd love it. If some of your listeners checked us out. Absolutely. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Love to have you on again sometime in the future. I think it'd be a lot of fun. I feel like we're only cracking the surface of some more good stories uh, in there. So. Well, it was a lot of fun, and I really appreciate the time. And uh, we'll, maybe we'll have you on our show sometime soon. There we go. So That'd be we fun. already had Jesus, so we'd love to have you too. Awesome. Thank you very much, sir. You have a good day. Stay safe out there. Okay, thank you. You too. Bye-bye. <laughs>